No, not yet. There I am. It's like magic. They push a couple buttons, and here I am. Well, we are continuing our family life series, and it's just really a privilege to be here together with you this morning. We'll be in 1 Timothy 4, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that, and I'm going to open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to come together and worship you and sing praises to your name and open your word and draw closer to you and take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you for our time and your word this morning. Thank you for the discussions we've been having about family and the implications it has to each of us. Lord, I pray as we open your word this morning that it would be a time of refreshment to our hearts. Father, that you would use a feeble man like me to communicate your perfect and errant word. And Lord, you would do so in a way that brings you great glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As the man sat in the small stone room, the light of the lamp flickered on the walls. He sat back and he was a bit at a loss. On one hand, he was incredibly frustrated. On the other hand, his heart was simply heavy. He was sad. Pondering his situation, he leaned forward and he grabbed the quill. He dipped it in the inkwell. And he began writing on the parchment. When he was done, he rolled it up and he took a warm piece of wax and he sealed the letter and he sent it to Ephesus. When the younger man received it, he received it with a tremble in his hands. You see, this younger man was feeling beat up. He wasn't doing so well. He wasn't even sure he wanted to read the letter, in fact. But he did. Slowly, he peeled the wax off the parchment, and he unrolled it, and he noticed that it was a letter, a very personal letter, that included verbiage like, my true son in the faith. It was from his mentor, his older brother in Christ. It was from Paul. And Timothy began reading the letter that Paul sent to him. And the angst in his heart, and some of the fear, and some of the, the attacks that the enemy had, on his ministry, began to slowly melt away. This morning, we're going to take a small peek at just one unfurling of that parchment. As we look at 1 Timothy 4, Paul told Timothy many, many important things. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 11 to 16. Paul starts in this little section of Scripture, by telling Timothy to command and teach these things. Now, as you know, chapter breaks and pagination and versification, these are things that have been added later for our reference so that we could get to places like 1 Timothy 4. But 1 Timothy is really one continuous letter. So to understand what Paul means by command and teach these things, we have to back up just a little bit to what he was referring to. In verse 6b, 7, and 10, 
It says, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So what was Paul telling Timothy to command and teach? Sound doctrine. The recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, in 12, verse 12, the very first part of it, Paul tells something to Timothy. He says, let no one despise you or look down on you because you're young. Now, the only reason that Paul had to say this to begin with is because this is a very real reality in Timothy's life. This is not just pessimistic uh, in the supposition on Paul's part. We have further evidence that Timothy was struggling with this. He was being treated this way as we look to other verses. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, it says, Paul is giving instructions to this uncouth Corinthian church, and he says to them, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. You heard Paul saying there? Paul's on this super important mission, and he said, when Timothy comes, stop scaring the kid. Stop intimidating him. Make him feel welcome. He's got something to offer you. Because he's doing the same work that I, Paul, am doing among you. In that day, there were two classes of people, uh, particularly uh, the men of this day. And each group of these two groups of men had their own social status and associations and funds and officers and events. And the first group is called the Girantes. This refers to the older men or the elders of the group. And the second group were the neoi. These were the younger men, typically men who were under age 40. Fortunately, I, never, I don't qualify for that group anymore. But Timothy did. And the second group is the group that Timothy was a part of because he was probably in his mid-30s at the time. And it would have been incredibly easy for these older men to look down on Timothy, not as a Timothy, but more as a Timmy. And imagine how unfortunate it would have been had they intimidated his zeal and his drive and passion to serve the Lord right out of him. How tragic that would have been. Paul continues his instruction to Timothy after, after telling him, don't let age get in the way. Don't be sidetracked by how old or how young you are. He goes on to give him some really important instruction. Picking up in the second half of verse 12, he says, set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 
Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch, Paul says, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He starts to take a look at the heart of Timothy. He says, when all these external stimuli have started to be resolved, start to look inward at where you're at. This is pertinent not only for Timothy, but for all of us, no matter what our age. What Paul essentially is saying is that before you can be effective with the gospel, you have to be greatly affected by the gospel. Have you internalized it, my young friend? Have you made it your own? Has Christ truly captured your heart? That's the starting point for ministry. Ministry can be defined as an overflow of our heart onto other people. And if our heart is not filled with the things of Christ first, by his word and by the realities of salvation lived out in our lives, then we're simply forwarding information to other people. As I look at this communication between Paul and Timothy, I can't help but be reminded of the strong implications of how the church today also deals with its own Timothys. Last December was my 12-year ministry anniversary here at Highland. Um, and as I look back over that time, you know, I, w- I was pondering some of the things that I've learned. And as I was studying this passage of Scripture, I was struck by how closely paralleled the things that I felt like I've learned can be drawn out of the text here. And I'd like to do that. I'd like to make a few observations. And these are not just Steve's nostalgic musings, as entertaining as that might or might not be. But instead, these are lessons that we can look at the interaction between Paul and Timothy and say, you know what? In the context of our church, in this family, there are things that we can learn as we stand alongside the Timothys of our church. Things that we can learn as far as the importance of ministering to them and with them. And so I've grouped them together in what I've called the great eight. Top ten didn't work, so I made something else that rhymed. But I truly believe that all of us, no matter our age or stage in life, all of us have a role and a responsibility to be influencing and investing in the Timothys that are all around us. So this this list is neither an exhaustive list, nor is it a silver bullet guaranteeing anything. But I think these are some of the key principles that we can mine out of our text today that help us to really recalibrate our heart and mind on the importance of the diversity of age within the church and whatever stage we're in, what our role is to jump on board with that. Now I'm going to go through these in the context of student ministry because um, of the 12 years that I've been here at Highland, um, most of those have been with students actually started with uh, birth through college and uh, probably the last 10 or so years it's been student ministry. So that's been a bit more my wheelhouse. So that's the context I'm going to speak from, but, but please know that this can be applied to all ages across the board as well. So the first lesson that we can draw out of this 
is that ministry to youth is real ministry with eternal significance. The reason I even have to mention this is because historically, youth ministry has taken its lumps. Now, I'm fortunate to have served in a church that really values ministry to Timothy's and really places a high premium on that. That's a blessing. But that's not always been the case. In fact, I've, um, I was reading a quote. It was, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I think. But the quote said, If you want to test your youth pastor's sanctification, ask him when he's going to become a real pastor. <laughs> now, I've never been asked that here. Thank you for that. But I can tell you that I've talked to guys who have. I serve on our, uh, our board for our student ministries for our district. And I'm also one of the ministry coaches for some of the younger or newer guys who are getting into ministry uh, within our district. And I've talked to a couple of them over the years who have gotten a, a metaphorical pat on the head by those leading in other ministry areas. And the gist of what they heard was that, you know, good for you. Thanks for babysitting. I mean, working with the kids. Maybe one day you'll graduate to real ministry. How tragic. And what I say to them in those times is that do you realize that you are coming alongside these young people in some of the most formational and influential years of their life and speaking God's word into it? that you're able to help bring the gospel to bear on their heart and on their soul during some of these most influential and trajectory-setting years of their life. And that's something that's going to ripple into the rest of their life and into eternity. You're doing real ministry. So ministry to teens is real ministry, and it has eternal significance. The second thing I think we can draw from this text is that What young people want, what teenagers really want, might come as a surprise to us. If we want an indication that ministry to young people really has eternal value, all we have to do is ask them what they really want. We've actually changed the context and the flow of our ministry nights because of the feedback from teenagers. And it's deeper and more grounded in the Word now than it ever was. But if you were to ask teenagers what they really want, you'll get a whole bunch of answers. But there are three things that really seem to rise up as a result of that. The first is a sense of purpose. They don't want to drift through a meaningless life. They don't want to be a piece of dead wood that just kind of goes with the flow. They want their life to count. They want it to matter. They want to do something and be involved with something that's really going to help make a significant difference both here and in eternity. And I think that that's something that all of us want, but it's often overlooked for young people because it's clouded oftentimes by all the the distractions in their life. And what greater purpose is there than life that's centered on the gospel? The second thing they want is authentic relationships. Now, this means uh, meaningful relationships with their friends. And I know that people always say, all you want to do is hang out with your friends. Well, that's, that's true. They do want to hang out with their friends. And so do we, right? 
But it's more than that. In addition to hanging out with their buddies, they want meaningful relationships with caring adults. They do. I've seen it time and time and time again. They're trying to navigate these waters. They're trying to figure things out. And some of you in here have two or three or four times as much life experience as they have, and they want that. They want what you have, and they desperately know that they need it. There's a book by Chap Clark um, called Hurt, and it's a great book. I gave it to um, all of our youth ministry team members a while back. I think I'm the only one that read it, but uh, that's all right. Um, but it's a fascinating book. He spent 10 years living uh, among high schoolers and getting to know them, what makes them tick. And he talks about this inner world that they have and how nobody is allowed in this inner world of who they really are because they guard that. That's their safety zone. But when somebody comes alongside them and it's an authentic person who they can trust and who really cares about them, they might let them into who they really are and begin to really make formative steps in their life. And the reason they guard that so closely is because they don't want to get hurt, hence the name of the book. The third thing that that students want is independence. I'll pause for the shock value there. But the independence that they want, they want it to be tempered with godly advice, godly feedback flowing from those authentic relationships. I know the parents are kind of rolling their eyes right now, like, yeah, right, I've tried that a million times. But the reality is, if they don't have enough independence, they feel smothered, they feel like they have to push back, they feel like, I'm not ready for life. But on the other hand, if they're left to do it alone, they also feel ill-prepared. A few years ago, I was at the district youth conference, and one of my adult leaders um, pulled me out of a room that I was... um, in a meeting in, said, one of our girls is really having a hard time out here. She wants to talk to you. I said, that's fine. I went out and I, I um, chatted with her and I said, well, what's going on? What's, what's happening? And she began to tell me about some of the issues that she was having with her family. And she was distraught. I mean, like between sobs, trying to communicate to me what was wrong. And I, I tried to use some historical types of things of my ministry years to try to fill in the blanks. And finally, I just said, what's the real issue? And she said, you know what? I can do whatever I want. My friends think I have it made. I can go when I want, come back when I want. I'm never late because I don't have a curfew. I can date whoever I want. I can hang out with whoever I want. And my friends think that's, that's just the most wonderful thing a teen could ever ask for. But she said to me, I don't feel like there's anyone in my life that cares about me. Her parents didn't temper her independence with godly feedback, with the sense of who is investing in you, daughter, and it devastated her. She was wrecked by it. She desperately wanted somebody to come alongside her and say, don't date that guy. He's looking for the wrong thing. Don't hang out with these friends. It's leading you down the wrong path. Stay the course. She desperately wanted a Paul in her life, and she didn't have it. And it devastated her. The next thing that, um, 
that we might see as far as what uh, lessons we can learn from this is that students' potential is just as much now as it is when. Paul didn't look at Timothy and say, well, one day you'll be an effective minister of the gospel. One day when you get to be my age. But sometimes that's the gist that we communicate. Now, once you graduate, once you're old enough, once you're married, once you have kids of your own, then you'll understand, then you'll be able to have a voice to speak. In the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul addresses it to the saints who are in Ephesus. There's no reason for us to believe that he was somehow excluding the younger version of those saints. But a couple things that he tells them in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good things that we're doing, the outworking of our faith for the Lord, this is something that the saints, the family of Christ, Paul says, are doing together. Just a little while later, in the same letter in chapter 4, Paul says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why did he give them? What are we to do? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, personhood, and to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. The saints are doing this work. The saints are maturing. And what group comes to mind when we think of maturing individuals that are moving toward Christ-likeness? It's so encouraging as I look at all the ways that young people serve in our church. I love to see them up here on worship team or ushering or working with VBS with the younger kids or in nursery at times. It's so encouraging to see that, isn't it? But I also love to see them serving outside the walls of the church as well. I've heard so many stories of them living on mission in their schools, in their neighborhoods and workplaces. I've seen that time and time again as I've had the privilege of, of standing alongside them over the years in various contexts. A few years ago, we were on a mission trip in um, Chicago. And about the middle of our trip, I got a call. And it was from the organization we were supposed to serve with the next morning. And this organization said, well, we've had some um, leadership structure issues, and we can no longer host your group tomorrow morning. So we kind of picked up the pieces, and we took our VBS, and we just kind of broke it apart, and then we uh, went to um, various areas and neighborhoods connecting with the local ministry, another one that we had um, come across, and we went to some areas and we started just doing some VBS components with some of these kids. And to hear some of our teens share Christ with some of the kids that we interacted with was so encouraging. In fact, there's a picture that I'll show on screen of one of our girls who was praying with three girls in the inner city of Chicago who received Jesus as their Savior for the very first time. How encouraging is that? A little while later, we were on a feeding route. We would uh, follow these food trucks to various locations, and these food trucks would stop, and people would know that these food trucks were stopping there. And we would follow them with our vans or church bus, and we would get out and help distribute the food to people in need. 
and we would pray with them and just talk to them about life. And we've been doing this for several hours, and it was about 6.30. Our own agenda called for about a 7 o'clock dinner time back at the church we were staying at. And I said to our team, I said, 6.30, this is about the time that we're scheduled to wrap up. What do you guys want to do? To a person, these teenagers said, we want to finish the route. For four more hours, we continued to distribute food to people in need in the inner city of Chicago. And at 11 o'clock at night, we were back at this church, eating walking tacos, sharing stories, and celebrating what God did that night. Can you imagine the energy in that room and the excitement of feeling like, as a teenager, I contributed. I was the hands and feet of Christ. I was able to do what God called me to do. Young people are not just the church of tomorrow. They're a vital part of the church of today. The fourth thing uh, that we can learn from uh, this dialogue between Paul and Timothy is that parents are the most influential person in the life of a young individual. And there's really no close second. I wish we had time to look at Timothy's family. We don't. But there's no lack of research that points to the fact that, that parents are the primary influencer in the lives of their children. And more important than, than what you say is what you do for the good or for the bad. So this really begs the question, how well am I doing, how well are you doing at modeling an authentic Christ-centered life to our young people? Because what they see in us can oftentimes be something that turns them away or draws them close. That role is incredibly important. The fifth thing that, that we learn is that young people are very intelligent and they're very perceptive. There's kind of this Al Bundy type of mentality that we have when we think of, of young people, especially teenagers. But I'm amazed at the profound questions and insights that I have heard after having discussions with teenagers. You know, they're challenged intellectually at school. They do incredible things at school. You guys uh, see what they're achieving as, as they stand up here as graduates. But they come to church and they also want to be intellectually challenged. When Paul was talking to Timothy, he said, there's this doctrine and there's all the things that go with it. He's like, teach that, understand it, live that out. He knew that Timothy could handle it. And young people today can handle it as well. And that's what we do. We teach young people from the Bible here at Highland. We give them lessons. We don't dumb it down. We don't water it down. We say, this is what God's word says, and here's how it applies to you as a 16-year-old. You know, as we think about that very fact, I think it's, um, I think it's also helpful, helpful for us to remember that young people are also very perceptive. We talked about authentic relationships. And young people can smell a phony a mile away. And they really want people who are authentic. And they don't want to feel like they're being used or manipulated. Can we be that authentic presence in their life that believes in them and cheers them on? The sixth, uh, well, let me just give you one example of this quick. I, 
I was paddling a, a canoe with a bunch of teens one year in an adventure trip, and after a hearty bout of paddle splashing and uh, trying to tip each other's canoes over, which I may or may not have started, <laughs> I got talking to some high school girls, and I just said, how's your walk with the Lord going? And, and they confessed to me, you know, not great. I don't know the word really well. I don't even know hardly how to read it or how to get into it. That discussion from those canoes led to a semester-long study that we did with those girls and some of their friends every Tuesday morning at 6.30 a.m. as we're discovering, what does the Bible teach? How do we read it? What's it all about? Every week, and they didn't miss. Teens are smart, and they want to hear what God's Word says. The sixth lesson, um, and this is kind of a, a hard one for me to stomach, um, but this is the, the realization that teenagers make easy targets. Raise your hand uh, if you'd like to go back and relive your teenage years. <laughs> Two of you, all right. <laughs> Junior high again, anyone? <laughs> you know, in 2017, teenagers live in a totally different world than many of us did. They have instant feedback on almost everything. Cyber comparison doesn't end. They have a constant barrage of a need to perform, to be involved. If you're going to get into this college, if you're going to make this team, you have to just, the bar is set so high for them. And their levels of burnout and stress and fatigue are at all-time highs. They're struggling. And I just want to encourage us, gently but directly, I want to encourage us that, in, that before we sort of shake our heads at them, that maybe we take a moment and remember that their life is just as complicated as ours. And if we're really being honest, we would say that we too at one point in our life, we're awkward and smelly. But God is doing something in them and through them. But they need us to stand alongside them. The seventh lesson that we learn is the importance of investing in those who invest in the Timothys. I can tell you in good conscience that I would not be standing here after 12 years of ministry if it wasn't for the prayers, encouragement, and support of other people into my life and in my family's life. There's a reason that the average youth pastor tenure is so short. In student ministry trenches, you're always going to have your critics and your champions. I've had both. By God's grace, the latter has far outweighed the former in my life. But I want to just take a moment and thank the Pauls in my life who have stood alongside me and the others who have served the Timothys. I just want to say thank you for that. There's been times in, in the dark hours of, of my ministry life um, that I felt a lot like Timothy. Why am I doing this? I'm done. I'm just, I'm burned out. I'm feeling deflated. God, why do you even have me here? And I've had to wrestle through those dark nights. And once in a while, I'll open one of my file drawers and I'll pull out the biggest, baddest, widest file that is in all of my file drawers. In fact, I brought it for you. <clears throat> Backlift. 
This file is labeled encouragement. This is a small part of some of the notes and letters and encouragement feedback that I've received here. It doesn't include the emails, it doesn't include the messages or the texts. But I stop and I, I look through this and I flip through it. And it stirs my heart and I'm reminded of why we stay the course. And like Paul encouraged Timothy, God uses things like this to continue to help us to stay the course. Keep writing your notes. They matter. When you pick up your kids from nursery, tell that nursery worker, thank you. Thanks for allowing me to be in service today. What you're doing matters. I've had the privilege of serving alongside the most incredible volunteers you can imagine. I've learned so much from them and grown so much standing alongside them. Take a moment to thank them for what they're doing as well. It's truly a blessing in our lives. The eighth and final lesson I want to talk about is that in all of this, God is the key player. God is the key player. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In this wrap-up of the examination of Paul and Timothy's dialogue, this is the most important thing that we can remember. Because in ministry, there are no celebrities. There are no Pied Pipers. In ministry, it's about God and his glory. And it's about pointing people to Christ and living it out authentically. That's what God, God has called us to do. There's been times where I've had to check myself over the years to determine, am I getting my value from how many teenagers are showing up or whether they think I'm a cool guy? Fortunately for me, teens are more interested in a sincere guy than a cool guy. I can at least offer them one of those two. So let me just wrap up with uh, just a couple of, of closing remarks. Psychology research tells us that when we watch a movie or read a book that tells a story, we tend to identify with one of the characters. For me, it's always Rambo. Maybe it's Dumbo. I don't know, one of the two. But as we look at the screenshot of 1 Timothy 4, each of us can likely relate to one of the key players in this story. The skeptical saints, the purposeful Paul, or the timid Timothy. The skeptical saints are the ones who have always had kind of a jaded view toward the Timothys. The step-aside kids, you don't really have a place here. Now, we wouldn't be so crass, but sometimes we find remnants of that in our heart. And if that defines you in any way, I don't want to beat you up, at least not too badly, but I want to just ask a couple of introspective questions. How did you get there? What's contributed to that view that you have of, of our younger brothers and sisters in Christ. And the second part of that is, what do you think might be affected both in their lives and in our church as a whole if we moved away from being a critic and moved more toward being a cheerleader in their life? For the purposeful Pauls, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for investing. Thank you for believing in and being intentional with our young people. What you do makes a difference. You've seen the diamonds in the rough. I just encourage you to keep it up. And for those who are the timid Timothys, 
It's not just the teens. It's not just the children. This can be anybody that feels intimidated out of ministry for any reason. I don't know enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I haven't whatever. And to you, I want to say, stay the course. God is doing something in you and through you. Set an example for for believers. Stay grounded in his word. Keep a guard on your life. And know, young Timothys, which all of us have been there, know that when you're struggling and you need us, we'll be alongside of you cheering you on and helping you through. Highland, we are the family of Christ. Each one of us has a critical role in the body here. Like Paul said to Timothy, may we persist in this, for by doing so we will save both ourselves and our hearers. May this be true of you and I as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God, and we thank you for this brief look into the dialogue between Paul and Timothy and all the things that we can learn about being the family of Christ across the ages here at Highland. Helps to do so in a way that connects our heart to yours and continues to um, encourage and spur on those who are younger than us. Thank you for this church that values the Timothy so well. I pray that we will continue as a family to serve you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.